0: So you're going to say, so the idea is that' I'm scripting this? You can't overscript it if it was already underscripted to begin with. I think you can. We just had a bullet point.
1: Talk here. <laughs> OK, here we go.
0: Welcome everybody. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning. We're two American expats and development professionals living in Geneva, Switzerland. We're here to have sharp, fun conversations with cool people as we touch on issues of trade, current events, and expat life.
1: Along the way, we'll poke a little fun at international development and ourselves, Artie from the perspective of a millennial who hasn't done much yet, and myself, a seasoned, middle-aged middle manager.
0: Our goal is to get to the heart of today's big issues and figure out what's important and why. In other words, we're here to make trade great again, one episode at a time.
1: And remember, folks, these views do not represent the views of any organization, our families, or even each other. Nobody. I don't even know what we're doing. Yet. I don't even know how this thing got turned on. How did this mic get here? I didn't met, I never met the guy. Who, I hardly knew him. Who pushed play? Welcome, everyone, once again to the fourth episode of the Tradesplaining podcast or podcast in British. We've got a great episode for you today. This episode will be focusing on the latest news coming out of financial markets and what it all means for us moving forward.
0: Indeed, plenty to talk about this episode. We're going to take a look at how the combination of the COVID crisis and Brexit has put the City of London on alert. Also, how the threat of trade wars are affecting international mergers and many other topics. Later on, we'll also be speaking with Marie Owens-Thompson, head of Global Trends at Banque
1: Lombard-Odier
0: here in Geneva.
1: Now, without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, Artie, into our next segment. Here, we're going to be looking at current events, and especially those related to the financial sector and globalization, stuff we'll be talking about with Marie Owens-Thompson a bit later. The first is there's a, a spot of trouble on the horizon for a big merger in the luxury sector. Here, we're calling this... Breakfast at Tiffany's is canceled. You'll tell us more about that one. Second, the combined issue of COVID and Brexit seems to be putting a lot of pressure on the city of London status as a financial capital in Europe. And we'll talk about what that seems to mean both for Geneva, but also for other potential financial capitals in Europe. Another point, we'll be talking about the bank's retreat from commodities And does that spell trouble for small traders? Finally, we have one about the importance of financial technology, fintech, and how that's taking over the financial sector. That has potential to have big effects, especially for those we work with in developing countries, many of whom cannot access formal financial markets. So, Artie, let me hand it to you to introduce us to why Breakfast at Tiffany's was canceled.
0: So, I'm not talking about the movie or the song From the early 90s, just in case you were wondering.
1: Yeah, I was obsessed with it for a while. I could sing the whole song.
0: It was a cool song. A spin doctor's is cool. Two Princes. It's like a weird early 90s song. Anyway, Tiffany's. Not the breakfast, not the song. What are we talking about? Well, luxury giant LVMH, Moet, Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, and a few other names which I can't pronounce, has backed out of its deal to buy the U.S. jeweler in a $16 billion sale. Now, this happened a few weeks ago. The sale fell apart in the face of pandemic and tariff, so a combined joint effort. LVMH, as most of us know, is the world's largest luxury goods conglomerate. It had announced plans to buy Tiffany's almost a year ago. And this was seen as sort of putting Tiffany's back on the map, getting it back on its feet in a way. The merger would have been the biggest ever in the luxury sector. However, LVMH a few months ago announced that it was pulling out of the deal, citing the uncertainties in the quote-unquote trade war specifically the U.S.'s threat to impose tariffs on French goods. I'm not talking about bread and cheese so far. (laughs) So what does this all mean? It means that trade wars, again, are not easy to win and they do have consequences. So, for example, uncertainty that you get from not knowing what tariffs will be from one day to the next has consequences in the sense that Private companies need to have some
1: kind of long-term certainty about what market conditions will be like. Also, we know we've been talking about one of the effects of COVID and lockdowns on trade. Maybe we may begin to consume differently. So consumption of luxury goods, for instance, an important driver of our work in Geneva's economy, may be going down. Mm-hmm. The value of a Tiffany's may have changed in between mergers talks and the merger closing. And if we're uh, truly in a phase of changing, disrupting our way of, of consuming, it may bring together multiple trends combined with a trade war with additional volatility, which may make such a deal completely unnecessary or unprofitable.
0: Yeah. And I think this is going to be a bad breakup. So LVMH has actually sued Tiffany's as well, it turns out. So in a trade war, nobody wins except the lawyer's.
1: Well, if Tiffany's may not be having a good season, what about the City of London? They must be doing better than that. Yes and no. So they are doing good in the sense that actually they're not doing good.
0: Brexit is actually putting the City of London's status as a financial hegemon at risk. So I think this has been compounded by tense Brexit negotiations, as well as the third wave of the coronavirus in the UK and here in Western Europe more broadly. So what is going on is that EU capitals are engaged in a much more intensifying debate over the extent to which they can rely on the city of London as the continent's main financial center over the coming decades. This, as I said, is made harder by relations within the UK in recent weeks and has only strengthened the argument for the EU, for many EU countries, to stand on its own two feet. Or as some officials have said, the UK's decision to breach international law according to the EU and its dealings with Brussels has further eroded the EU's willingness to offer financial market access or what they call equivalence to the UK. Irony alert turned the EU's hodgepodge of smaller financial capitals into a unified financial system. is easier said than done and it will require not only a, a clear EU strategy, but better cross-border coordination and actually more integration among EU capitals. So you're seeing a clear dichotomy between the UK's move for Brexit and going it alone, so to speak, whereas the EU is actually looking towards more integration, more trade, if you will, better coordination uh, among different countries and member states.
1: So let's wait and see on that. I guess to stay with the point about banks and how they're changing, which is one of the themes of your discussion about the City of London, it's also part of the general evolution of banking. So we see banks reducing staff, we see banks going more digital, we see other institutions coming in, even virtual banks, that are providing financial services and reducing cost, So this is also affecting commodity trading.
0: Again, the theme is because of trends that have been continuing for a long time, but also now sped up because of COVID. So there's been a number of large banks across Europe who have worked in the trade financing space who have scaling back quite a bit. A lot of this is also a response to oil prices and then obviously a move away from riskier forms of, of doing business. So the margins on this type of work are low. And so there's a high risk for getting it wrong, essentially. And this has, as I said, a negative effect on smaller traders of commodities who rely on this financing to conduct business. So we see a direct effect on smaller producers or smaller enterprises, some of which we work with in development.
1: Uh, That's very true. And we always were seeing uh, a trend, which was that uh, being an intermediary is becoming less and less valuable. A lot of this intermediation, a lot of the people between agricultural enterprises and the rest of us are disappearing. Whatever margins there are, are going down. And we're not sure what will replace them. And we don't really know whether that's going to be eventually perhaps positive for small companies because, you know, fewer margin, fewer people in the middle, more digital could mean lower costs. And cost has been such an issue, especially cost of financing.
0: It's funny because on the On that other side of the coin, commodities traders themselves have had a great 2020. So as you said, volatility is king.
1: There's apparently fintechs are taking over finance. This could have an absolutely enormous effect on the folks uh, we've worked with in the developing world.
0: Of course. So this is building on this theme that we've been talking about, cutting out the middleman, if you will. So fintech has been breaking down barriers. They've been disrupting a lot of the work that has been sort of the domain of traditional banks. And you're seeing this with things like Revolut, which is a a huge player. Right now, it's not very profitable, but it is forcing banks to rethink the way they are doing business, how money is circulated within the economy, how it gets in people's hands. So People can mean us, consumers and here in Western Europe, but it can also mean smallholder farmers, traders in developing world. So you're seeing a real shift. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know which way this will play out, but you're seeing lots and lots of disruption, and it's it's really forcing a rethink in the way these banks do business.
1: I agree. And as we see small companies and people who are less well-off in developing countries cannot access the formal banking system, it's too expensive, it's too complicated, They can get things like mobile money, but these kinds of things can be expanded hugely. And if the costs can be reduced, folks can have access to loans, they can have access to easy payment systems, they wouldn't have to carry cash anymore. They could even have an electronic payment history or commercial history, which could help banks realize they may be a lower risk than they thought. So I'm really, really excited to see what happens because this is one of the massive issues we face with small companies.
0: It's interesting actually because... In the same vein, you go from being nervous about the fact that banks are m- moving away from trade financing, and then you're wondering maybe who fills that void and moving on to fintech, could this be the answer to how these traders are going to get financing? Because maybe the days of 25% interest rates for a smaller, medium-sized mm-hmm. enterprise or more, right? And maybe I'm being too, too generous, maybe those days are long gone, or maybe they're, they're going away. Maybe fintech and these types of companies are the ones who, who fill in that gap.
1: Obviously, one of the issues we haven't discussed is if there are fewer bankers in Geneva, though, does that mean we will not be able to get a crafted cocktail? Our listeners need to know. They need to know.
0: Moving on, that brings us to our next segment. Marie Owens Thompson is a financial market economist with experience in both investment banking and private wealth management. Marie is currently working with Banque Lombard Odier, where she recently joined as head of global trends and sustainability. My old job. She also served in the chief economist roles with HSBC in London, Merrill Lynch in Paris, and Indosuez in Geneva.
1: Your, your old job. I just caught that, your old job. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be familiar. Her work focuses on making complex issues accessible to all. So in this capacity, she has regular columns in print media, contributions to Bloomberg, CNBC. She's also worked outside the financial sector, notably for IKEA. That's not, uh, not a cliché. And she founded and managed her own company within the equine industry. She's got an MBA from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden and a PhD in international economics from the Graduate Institute here in Geneva, Switzerland.
0: So, Marie, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on board. I guess let's start off by maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: So I, I grew up in Sweden in, in a town called Norrköping, south of Stockholm. And my mother was Swedish and she was, she was quite the Francophile. So she had me study French and that featured prominently in all my studies. And after I'd finished, I, I felt like I now really needed to speak French. So that's when I oriented my search for a job and ended up in Geneva in 1984. So I haven't actually lived in Sweden since uh, 1984. So when I came here, I did work at IKEA. So so that plugged me in quite uh, nicely with the Swedish uh, community and uh, we all skied together and worked together. And it was, uh, it, it was a really fascinating and, and exciting time, I must say. IKEA then... Back in the mid 80s was perhaps uh, 6,000 employees. Yeah, now there's 60,000. So it was the startup phase and, and it was a lot of fun. And I felt like I'd brought Sweden with me. So didn't have any problems there. And still rely on IKEA for my meatballs and all of those things that are essential.
1: So, and I will come back around to Geneva because I'm sure it's changed hugely since the 80s. But let's start off with some questions around trade and finance because the cool combination of stuff you do is that you think about everything and you relate it a little bit back to finance and to the private sector and how how that works. So right now, finance is in a, a period when people are a little bit suspicious, maybe a little skeptical, and they're asking what's the role of finance, what should it be? What's the way you think about finance and what it means for, for society? Has that changed at all? Has anything changed in your thinking about what the role of finance should be uh, and why?
2: So I, I come from an economics background really. And I work in finance. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. so I, I do tend to put the two together, but, the, but they are after all a, a bit different. So really my, my passion is, is economics and, and I love uh, applying economics to finance. And clearly this is something that we all need. Yeah. There's absolutely no way of escaping it. When you go through life, you will obviously confront economic and financial questions on a daily basis. And I think what's exciting is to try to make people overcome the fear that I often feel I encounter that people might have.
0: Marie, your work focuses on global trends. Why is this important for a bank like Lombardier? And more importantly, what does this involve? How do you identify and analyze which are important and and why?
2: So I, I think any economist working in a bank, our mission is to try to understand the world around us and uh, have a view on where we think it's going how it will evolve and try to help draw conclusions from those things in terms of what kind of investment decisions we should logically make in such a context yeah so so it's always a question of understanding the world so when we try to understand the world obviously we have to get engaged with big trends and big changes now, these changes can sometimes occur in particular patterns, and then we can have new factors that intervene and that change those patterns. And one interesting thing is that when most people spot a trend, it's already old. One is, for instance, the the service economy. There's been a lot of anxiety in many countries about that manufacturing is withering away and, and, and it, is problematic, yeah? And anxiety about how service sector jobs are not of the same quality, it's commonly thought, than manufacturing sector jobs might be. So, the question I'm very fond of asking people is when they think that the service sector became the larger sector in the US. So, so now I want to ask you. I'm turning the interview around. Could you have a stab at guessing when you think that the service sector became larger than manufacturing in the U.S.? What year, roughly? I'm okay with a decade, too.
0: I, I want to blame Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so I, I will say the mid-70s onwards. 1930s.
2: 1930s. Okay. You're the complete outlier in my experience on this question. Most people would say 1980s. That's the most frequent answer I get. The true answer is uh, 1958, say. So in terms of growth, if we think that there's something inferior about the quality of the growth that the service sector can generate well, then we would be disappointed with the whole experience of growth that we've had since the 60s and and up until now, which which in actual fact has been the most spectacular uh, period in economic history. So that's one example of how not really being aware of trends that have been in place for a long time can skew our perception of what's going on and lead us to draw the wrong conclusions.
1: I guessed early because I knew the answer couldn't be uh, yesterday. (laughs) I actually didn't have a good idea. Is that a Beatles reference?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So So obviously we couldn't have an interview without talking about COVID. And one thing we'd like to know is how has COVID changed the way you personally think about these macro
2: trends? So definitely we would consider COVID to have been an accelerator and an amplifier, of already existing trends in in the economy. And I think the conclusion going forward is that we've sort of discovered that we can work from home and that we can do business without necessarily traveling. So so those I think are important lessons in terms of our forever changing world and how adaptive we really are. Uh, So that's, I would argue, a positive takeaway. Now, in terms of financial performance, that's been, of course, driven by the central banks and also by the fiscal support measures that most countries have provided. Without those support mechanisms, there's no way that the financial markets would have been in such stellar health, relatively speaking, as they are today.
1: So one of the implications of watching these trends is where real estate prices are going to go up. Should we be buying real estate?
0: Trump said that uh, North Korea has nice beaches.
1: What are your thoughts? Should we
0: get in early?
2: I would not buy on the beach by the same token. <laughs> <laughs> because we know that sea levels are going to rise. So, so, so there I had the, the pleasure of, of, of working with a former colleague who coined the phrase, it's no longer location, location, location. It is elevation, elevation, elevation. <laughs>
0: So Mount Everest?
2: <laughs> yeah, might be a bit chilly. Yeah.
0: I, I saw Waterworld once. It looked nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't know how you, exactly. I don't know how you get groceries. So I think we had mentioned this before, but we're going to throw in as many ABBA references as possible into this conversation. So we're going to try to sneak them in at different points. But I think I'll just give you a heads up for this one. So would you say that the stock market rally and the financial sort of um, windfalls that we've seen the last year and the the work that central banks have been doing most importantly is really just about money, money, money?
2: (laughs) Cheap cheap money. I think we we all of course assume yeah that there should be a close relationship between what happens in the real economy and what happens in the stock market in particular and perhaps some people also look at bond markets and other markets but maybe not now yeah <laughs> and the reality of it all is of course that there's very few things where there's only one variable that determines the outcome of the other most things are determined by perhaps hundreds of variables but the human brain can't quite compute all of that so So we have to try to simplify and come up with a conclusion of what we think is the dominant force at any particular point in time. And I definitely think that the dominant force in terms of driving stock market returns right now is all this liquidity because all of this money comes into the system and has to go somewhere. And then we come into all the other variables that also influence this equation and they all sort of point into the best place to put your money today in terms of risk and return is is probably still the stock market. This is not a recommendation and I am not telling anybody <laughs> to buy anything in particular.
0: Just no beachfront property and no commercial real estate. That's no what commercial we've got real, real estate, for.
1: please no <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about trade and supply chains. We hear a lot about COVID potentially shortening supply chains and about the standards going up for companies that are exporting potentially to developed markets. For instance, where things are being more regulated and where buyers are being asked to look into their supply chains. Also, we hear maybe consumer behavior is changing. So how do you see potentially trade changing? because of COVID as as an accelerant, and how could that affect maybe exporters that we may be working with at some point?
2: Yeah, I think that it, a lot of people have responded to, to COVID by saying, oh, now we don't have all of this production of these necessary goods in our own countries, and we need to bring all of that manufacturing back to our own countries. And that I would like to uh, argue against, Yeah, that that cannot be the solution and not cannot be a winning strategy. Yeah. Uh, And on the contrary, I would say that COVID and, and all these other big issues, climate change and so on, they, these are global problems that really require a global response. And, and given all the populism also that we are seeing around, now is really a very, very important time to defend openness. Because it's only through openness, open trade flows and multilateral collaboration that we will be able to uh, ensure food security for one and a global response to all these challenges. That's the only way. If we go it, try to go it alone, I can't think of any example in economic history where that has been a winning option.
1: Interesting, because it also brings up this issue. People are saying, "Well, trade is part of the problem in a way. So, if we have environmental degradation, if we have, let's say, low wages and so on, trade is is a part of the problem. So, one thing we have to do in order to have a a more a fairer world in the future is to manage trade differently. And the same would be for investments. Do we we need to think differently about how we invest? Do you think there's a role for that, investing and trading differently and maybe even regulating such things?
2: For sure. And it's happening as we speak. Yeah, All of this is coming and people are changing their behaviors and investors are changing their investment strategies and the regulator. Certainly the Europeans are pushing out new stuff at breakneck speed. So so for sure, we have to ride this wave, so to speak. And I think that we've somehow collectively come to an understanding that the world economy, the way it has functioned up until now, is unsustainable. And therefore, we need to look for companies and ways of doing things that will allow us to do what we do, but in a sustainable fashion.
1: Let me probe you a little bit on that. You sound kind of quasi-optimistic, like we can find different ways to do things and the world will be a better place. Is that, that's a, I, I think know that's kind so. of a short yeah. summary, but.
2: Absolutely. And uh, ESG is, is great, but the notations that people attribute to companies in that framework is like a photograph of what the company has managed to do in that space at a precise moment. So it's sort of, uh, if we invest in those companies, we're rewarding companies for what they've done so far. But we have no, at this point, any measurement uh, through the ESG framework about what they will do in the future. So we're trying, everybody's trying to develop new indicators. And um, at Lombard-Rodier, for instance, uh, we are definitely focusing on the next step, which is how to measure the transition. How do we know if these companies going forward are going to deliver what it is that we are expecting of them? So this is, I think, uh, really where. The opportunities lie and where there, we are likely to see lots of exciting stuff, lots of brown companies turning green in this transition. And then we have all the new companies that will come up with new solutions to do all of those things.
0: That's, that's very interesting. So would you say if Gordon Gecko from Wall Street was around today, he would say green is good?
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good one. Oh, absolutely. Trademarking that one. Yeah. I, I subscribe to that one for sure. Absolutely. I,
1: thought, I thought an ABBA reference was coming, but <laughs> no, because no, that, that's
2: mean, later.
0: Even ESG is all about money, money, money
2: i think, I think we need to is, change uh, we need to change that tune
0: well knowing it's, me and knowing you i don't think that's happening anytime soon she's <laughs> saying it's not a winner winner takes it all type scenario i, I can all win i think this podcast is going to be our waterloo <laughs> <laughs> in terms of this will be the last one <laughs> so marie do you think that banks are are confident in and that the returns themselves will justify this focus on ESG, or is it a case of needing to focus on it because of the external factors, whether you're looking at forest fires in in, in California or the Amazon and, and things like this? Is it, is it a case of that they think it makes financial sense, or is it more that we need to do this because of all of the things I mentioned, or is it a mix of the two?
2: Well, I mean, I, I cannot pretend to talk for the other banks, yeah, but, but we are 100% convinced that this is the investment opportunity of the century. And, and again, I want to stress that ESG is just one piece of the whole sustainability discussion. And the whole sustainability discussion is so young that we're just at the beginning of all of this. And scrambling for the right measurements, scrambling for the right data, and all of us uh, together trying to understand how to do this. So there are many roads that lead to Rome, and the whole space has not been normed. So people are doing it in different ways. But our focus really in terms of investor returns is on the transition. So more forward-looking indicators than the ESG framework, which is, again, more reflecting what has already been done.
0: So, on that note, we talk a lot about inequality nowadays and concentrations of wealth specifically, but also you can look at markets and and seeing returns being concentrated in certain areas, whether that's text or or otherwise. How do you see this affecting the conversation? Is this part of uh, the things you're looking at when you're talking about global trends? So, for example, in the US, we you know we talked about a decoupling between the stock market returns and the overall health of the US economy. How does this play into your thinking?
2: Oh, it's uh, crucially important, of course, that we don't leave people behind and that everybody can progressively improve their living standards. If you have an economy that is very unequal, you will have greater physical insecurity, more conflict, more social tension, more difficult political climate. All of those things together will render the conduct of optimal economic policies much more difficult. So we have a moral conviction, and we also have an economic conviction that this is not uh, desirable. And uh, and and how to fix it? There's only one way to fix it, yeah, and that is to raise taxes from somebody that we can then redistribute. And the shocking thing about the US in this context is that it's obviously one of the richest countries in the world, yet it has an inequality in terms of income distribution that looks much more like that of Brazil and Mexico than it looks like the one we have in Europe. So that's an absolutely shocking situation. One thing we've talked about before on the program is also it's a podcast
1: podcast I I sometimes say broadcast apparently that's also out of date Rob thinks this is a radio program (laughs) so (laughs) on this cast that we're doing uh, (laughs) we talk about stranded things stranded assets but we also have stranded people in a way who don't have the right skills the new economy isn't for them they don't want to physically move to where the jobs are and this is a this is a sticky problem difficult to resolve with training. So a factory worker who's a hundred miles from my hometown, isn't going to move there in order to become a, a computer programmer, for instance. So what, what do we do at its heart to kind of deal with these stranded people?
2: Yes. I think that what we have to do is protect the people and not the jobs. When you try to protect the jobs from becoming obsolete, then you give money or subsidies or you put up tariffs on the foreigners. And who benefits from that? Obviously, the, the company yeah? and the direct benefit to the people uh, working in those companies is at best short-lived. We've never, nobody uh, that I'm aware of in uh, economic history again has actually managed to stop such an evolution for any particular industry. So so they, it always ends with the industry becoming obsolete in any case. I'm using harsh words, but the, the solution is obviously not to protect the industry or the company, but to protect the people. And this we can do in, in lots of different ways. Yeah, We can imagine uh, giving them a, a basic salary. We can imagine giving uh, support for retraining and job hunting. And there's a, a whole host of, of things can be done. But I think uh, that the important thing is to dissociate this support initiative from the firm and put hmm. it firmly instead on the person so like a worker named
1: fernando
0: ding 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 ding
1: <laughs> be protected rather than the
0: job you're, you're the winner winner that was too I, I winner takes it good. all yeah. yeah i don't think i, that I didn't call
2: that and, first and <laughs> so yeah right Oh
1: my! <laughs> 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 ay, ay, ay. <laughs> uh, yes,
0: yes, she's she's, in. she's converted. <laughs> she's in. There we go. So, in some trade wars are not easy to win.
2: This is a question.
0: It was rhetorical-ish. Is that? A, yeah, that's not an aba. It was a summation.
2: <laughs> yeah, but from from an economics point of view, we are not particularly concerned with bilateral trade balances. Yeah, mm. we are concerned with the overall trade balance. And, and the overall trade balance is fundamentally determined by the savings and investment patterns of, of the country in question. So if the US really wanted to address its trade deficit, it should have raised taxes, not cut them. Hmm. So that would have been a different approach to, <laughs> to yeah, the trade war. Think, Instead of having a trade oh, war, God. you can raise taxes. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not a
0: a, a vote winner. More taxes. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not. We're
1: gonna we're gonna put we're gonna put that a different way. I don't sound is nice. Yeah, Yeah. possibly not. Taxing me, taxing
0: you. (laughs) Oh, good one! (laughs) Absolutely.
1: That wraps up part one of our interview with Marie Owens Thompson of Lombardier. But wait, there's more. Click on part two to hear more about trade, finance, the future, and of course. More opera references. Fernando, over to you. So our next segment, overheard at the UN Beach Club. My favorite. You, it is your favorite. It's everyone's uh, favorite. It's getting a little chilly. A few leaves are falling, yet we are still going to the beach club, of course. Short shorts. And I heard yesterday a long word, which sounded important. People were nodding. They were going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this word is complementarity mm. so complementarity what does this mean to you already
0: well complementarity can mean a number of different things to different people for me when i think of complementarity i think of things that just fit together right these could be two different work streams and say in the work we do in development which as the name says complement each other they fit into the work you're already doing it's really a multiplier if you will making sure that you're increasing impact, you're doing it in a sustainable way, in a way that gets results on the
1: ground. Thanks, Artie. It's, it's not a bad try. I like where you're going with that. But in fact, it means doing the same thing you were doing before, but using different adjectives.
0: I see. So I just wasted all that air
1: and carbon for no reason? No, those are some of the adjectives. Okay. You got the, I think you got the adjectives there. I think we need to actually write that down. Sustainability. Sustainability. Synergy. Exit strategy. Thank George Bush? I like the word, like word workstream. I think that came in there several times. Not bad. I was this close to saying vertical. Yeah, the vertical could have come in here or horizontal or perhaps both.
0: Cascading approach. It's vertical yet horizontal in nature. It's cross-cutting in the way that we do things, but it increases impact and delivery on the ground in a sustainable, equitable,
1: and inclusive way. But let's not forget agility. We need to take an agile management approach. Just throw a bunch of adjectives in there. (laughs) Now we come to one of our favorites, Artie. This is This Week in Local News. Remember, the world may seem like it's in upheaval, but here in Geneva, we also have very difficult issues we're dealing with. Key issues, the issues that really that matter. The, The issues that are close to your heart, close to my heart. So, I want you to start us off. We've got a couple of different points here. This is something about yodeling. This is
0: actually my favorite one. Fun fact this did not come to us from local news. This is actually in one of my millennial online newspapers that I read. It's not a paper, but you know what I mean. Uh-huh. The Daily Beast. Daily Beast. Surprise we got this. So, I think I'd like to take this one if I could. Go ahead. I know this is your thing. All but yours. You are very territorial, but I'll get through it quickly. Fire away. Switzerland's yodelers have created one of Europe's worst COVID hotspots. Swiss authorities have voiced their concern about two sing-along yodeling concerts attended by over 600 fans of that traditional shindig of singing that are now known to have been super spreader COVID-19 events. People who attended the indoor performance in late September in the Swiss canton of Schietz. Schwyz, Yes, Schwyz. That's, a, that's a real name. That is a thing. That's a real name. Mm. We're advised to socially distance, but not required to wear masks that would have impeded their yodeling.
1: It would impede your yodeling. I think Ho- that's, how o- th- that's obvious. You can't muzzle greatness. But So you're saying that standing around making a very loud noise while uvulating, while moving your various parts of your mouth around. Not good. Is not good. This is not a good thing that's, for the. That's the opposite normal. of good. Okay. So this. So you're saying, don't stop people going to work. Don't stop people taking buses and stuff. Just stop yodeling. Stop the yodeling. Yeah, the as small, a COVID nineteen measure.
0: Exactly. The small village area now has a positivity rate of fifty percent. In other words, half of all the tests came back positive. And positive is negative in this case. It's definitely not good. Beat Hegner, who organized the events, told the locals. Yeah. that.
1: Beat. No, it's not I read good. it here as Beat. No, it's Beat. No, Beat. Beat, beat. It. it's a Swiss name, Beat.
0: His mama call him Beat.
1: i'm call him Beat. She call him
0: Beat. i him Beat, beat. Okay. <laughs> who organized the event, told a local Swiss TV station that they found out nine days after the event that several people from the main group of yodelers who attended both concerts were infected, quote, we can't do anything about what happened to this yodeling group, end quote.
1: Very good. So what we're recommending to the to the Swiss federal authorities is to ban yodeling until there's a vaccine.
0: I would say so. So to all our listeners who are aspiring yodelers in training or Padawans, if you will, please stop. Or only by Zoom. Or just not in a group with people. Do it in your house. Zodeling. Zodeling Zodeling is a good one. I tried to come up with a better one, but I can't. You got me. (laughs) Zodeling. I tried. I was a bit jealous, but bravo. Thank you very Zo- much. Zodeling. Ha- hashtag something? No. Hashtag my time will come.
1: Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Marie Owens Thompson, who was very entertaining. Great sport with the ABBA references to talk about finance, economics, mega trends, sustainability. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did.
0: That's right. Also, don't forget to download all our episodes and subscribe.
1: And make sure you
0: keep those mediocre reviews coming. Also, check out our next episode coming up in a few weeks. And don't forget to tell your friends. Don't forget to tell your friends. Until then, stay classy, world.